You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Well, if you turn with me to the book of Colossians this morning, and obviously our memory verse is Colossians 128, but as always, it's important to understand the context of what's around that verse. So I'll be reading Colossians 1 and verses 21 through chapter 2 and verse 5. So Colossians 1, 21 through 2 and verse 5. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard, and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave to me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments, For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor and theologian. He spent the last two years of his life in a Nazi prison camp uh, before he was executed by Hitler at the age of only 39. Um, After his death, his letters and writings were published that he had written from prison. And if you've ever read them, they're described as being influential, uh, inspirational, um, and even very fascinating. And I say that because his writings are called the letters from prison. And we have in the New Testament letters from prison as well. We have Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon were all written by the Apostle Paul as he found himself in prison because of his love for Jesus Christ. 
And even Bonhoeffer would agree that if there's any letters that should be fascinating and transformational, it's the letters of the Apostle Paul. And so we're going to take a look at Colossians 1, and we'll focus on verse 28, but we'll also look at those verses surrounding that passage. And we're going to do that from three perspectives that I think help us understand what should the Christian life look like. And as we come into a new year, it gives us a good time to reflect on that and to think about what that means personally and what it should mean to every Christian as well. So the three perspectives we'll look at is that a Christian life is a Christ-centered life. So a Christian life is a Christ-centered life. A Christian life is a word-centered life. And a Christian life is a servant-centered life. And so we'll break each of those down, beginning with the Christian life is a Christ-centered life. Uh, now, it might be helpful to keep in mind, as I've just briefly alluded to, Colossians is one of two letters Paul wrote to a church that he's never visited. So you can tell as he's writing this, he hasn't personally been to them, although he's had communication, is familiar uh, with what is going on there. Um, Secondly, the city of Colossae is a city that's seen its better days. In other words, by the time Paul's writing to them, they're almost a city that's somewhat forgotten now. Historically, culturally, they're not as dominant as like Laodicea or Heropolis, another major city. Um, and then thirdly, the church in Colossae is, is generally strong. They, they have a genuine faith. Paul commends them in the opening verses for their faith, but they are facing a potential threat. And it's a threat of a false teaching that seems to have some Jewish components to it, as well as a, a later uh, development of Gnosticism, sort of this clear divide between what is matter is sinful, and what is spiritual is, is holy. Uh, so Paul's very concerned that this teaching that's out there could make its way into the church and pull it away from Jesus Christ. So that gives you a little bit on the background. So now let's unfold and look at what it means to say that the Christian life is a Christ-centered life. Um, and so you notice in verses 15 through 23, um, going back a little bit to just before what we read, that in verses 15 through 20, Paul's theme in this opening chapter is the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And this is very important in light of that false teaching that's putting pressure into the church, uh, that Paul wants to exalt who Jesus Christ is. And I don't think it surprises us that the first point in the sermon is, well, the Christian life is a Christ-centered life. Yeah, that makes sense. Christian has Christ in it. That seems to fit. But what does that exactly mean? Now, certainly it includes that we praise the person and work of Christ, which is how the memory verse begins, uh, he who we proclaim. The he there is in reference to what Paul's been describing in this opening chapter of Colossians, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so if you look closely now, more at verses 21 and 22, 
We see that in a Christ-centered life, every Christian realizes they have been transformed by Jesus Christ. Now, you may not always feel that way. You may sometimes feel as if not much has changed in your life, but the reality is you have been radically transformed the moment you genuinely acknowledge Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so you notice in verse 21 and 22, a series of contrasts to illustrate that. So Paul mentions you were once alienated from God, uh, you were enemies in your mind, and you were marked by evil behavior. That's in complete contrast to now this change in state and standing in verse 22. But now you've been reconciled, you're holy in his sight, you're without blemish, and you're free from accusation. What a dramatic change should be kept before us that is true in Christ Jesus in a Christ-centered life. Uh, we really are no longer the same person we were before salvation. We, we may physically look the same, but, but we are dramatically different. But then you notice in verse 23, Paul talks about this a Christ-centered life illustrates a dramatic change as well in our relationship, not just to Christ, but to his church. And so verse 23 in the opening chapter gives you a, an insight into the whole purpose of this letter and Paul's concern, his genuine love for the believers in Colossae. He says, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard that is proclaimed to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So Paul summarizes the change in his relationship to Christ and to Christ's church is summarized in one word, servant. And he repeats that three times, twice in verse, or you see it in verse 23. You'll see it again down in verse 25, uh, that Paul places himself now under the willing obedience and authority of God. So a Christ-centered life speaks of our relationship to both Christ and his church. But there's one other element here that we see, and that is the motivation for a Christ-centered life is our love for Christ and the church. And that's very important that we're not saying a Christ-centered life is merely a list of, of do's and don'ts. It's, it's not a spiritual um, you know, bucket list that you just check off every day, but it must be generated and motivated by a genuine love for God. And you see this in verse 24 in particular, when, when Paul says something here that at first might appear controversial or contradictory. He talks about that he rejoices in what he's suffering as he fills up in his flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Now, Paul is not implying that somehow Christ's death wasn't sufficient to provide salvation because he's already told us in verses 15 through 20 of the superiority and supremacy of Christ. What he's actually reminding us is, is that one's love for Christ is reflected in their willingness to endure all things 
for Christ. And so Paul is saying here, the suffering that he has endured and is presently enduring as a prisoner, most likely in Rome, affirms and testifies to the fact that he is a disciple of Jesus Christ. He is completely forgiven in Christ based on what Christ alone has done. But the suffering he's going through affirms that he is a follower of Jesus Christ. And so we see here that a Christ-centered life reflects our love for Christ and out of that, our love for the church. This is something that Paul will pick up in his letter to the church in Ephesians in Ephesus where I'm sure you can fill this in, he'll say husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And so he sees that natural connection there. So now let's take a look a little bit further here in this passage at the second principle. So we talked about first, hopefully now we have a firmer grasp on what it means to say the Christian life is a Christ-centered life. But now we move to a second point, and that is a the Christian life is a word-centered life. And so again, look at the opening words of our memory passage in verse 28. He is the one we proclaim. He is the one that we announce, that we speak about. And you see these two participles that follow that, admonishing and teaching, tell us how we proclaim Jesus Christ. We proclaim him through teaching and admonishing. Now, you can tell by this when Paul's saying we, he's more than likely thinking of the apostles. This is the work of an apostle. This is the work of a spiritual leader. This is the work of a pastor. But we don't want to limit that to think, well, Paul's just saying that's their job, because all of us are to proclaim Jesus Christ. All of us, in one way or another, are to be teaching and admonishing. And so those two participles are important. To admonish, as you know, means to warn or instruct. Paul is admonishing them. Here's this false teaching kind of making its way into your neighborhood. Be, be on guard against it. Realize what's so dangerous and deceptive. Even though he rightly acknowledges, it sounds good. It, it sounds like it, it sound, has a ring of truth to it, but it's not true. So admonishing is warning and instructing. You get to the element of teaching. Teaching broadens that to the impartation of knowledge. Uh, and so what is it that we're to be knowledgeable of, that we are to be using as our means of teaching and admonishing? Well, you notice that this is sort of explained to us by the use of the word gospel that Paul refers to. In other words, if we are to be word-centered, that means that all of us as followers of Christ are to be captivated by the living word as well as the written word. So the living word is Jesus Christ. But we are to be captivated as well by the written word which is the full revelation of God through Jesus Christ. And so that's why you notice in verse 23, his repeating of the word gospel, the hope held out for you in the gospel. And the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed. 
So I would hope that all of us would be able to give a very simple definition. If someone to ask us, what does the word gospel mean? Now we might think right away, well, it's good news. Well, that is true, but, but what is the good news? And, and all of us should be able to articulate that in a very concise way. And it might vary how we word it. We could say the good news is about what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Uh, we could say the good news is an indicative followed by imperatives. In other words, it's what God has done. And because of what he's done, then there's imperatives, responsibilities that fall upon us. And that is exactly what you see in Colossians and in many Paul's letters. He's telling you what God has done for you. And then because of that, here's how we should respond. So in a word-centered life, we are captivated by not just Christ, but we should be passionate about the word of God. And so as you look at verses 25 through 27, Paul talks about this mystery. Now, the mystery is the gospel, but then he even clarifies that and says the mystery is Christ. And you notice what he says there in verse 25. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. And that word of God includes the mystery of God revealed in Jesus Christ. But I like how he qualifies that and says he was commissioned, he was called to deliver the word of God in its fullness. Which sort of brings us to one of my goals as we pray is not only as a pastor, do I, do I want to continue to grow in my knowledge of scripture and how different parts of scripture relate to one another? how they tell one big story of redemption. But, but I want that for each of you as well, that you would be able to look back on 2021 and see that you have grown in the fullness of your understanding of God's word, uh, that you have a more completed picture uh, and that that would not leave you to be content, but, but even captivate you more and drive you further to read and study the scriptures. Uh, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 13 through 16. 1 Timothy 4, 13 through 16. And often I will go through just reading the pastoral epistles uh, just as an encouragement or a fresher. Uh, for my own walk with the Lord and as your shepherd. Uh, but I'm always amazed by, in one sense, the strategy for growing disciples is very simple and has not changed from the first century. In other words, we have a blueprint here how to present each one mature in Christ. Uh, and it, it lacks maybe some of the the things that often we see today. I mean, I get emails every week from different curriculum sources saying, here's 10 ways to grow your church. Here's five things you need to do. Uh, you know, marketing rather than going back to 
Here's what God simply says. So listen to 1 Timothy 4, verses 13 through 16, where, as you well know, Paul's writing to Timothy, who's a pastor, a shepherd, and he says this, beginning at verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which is given you through prophecy, when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul is saying, you want to teach your people to be word-centered? Keep taking them back to the word of God. Teach it and preach it in a practical way a relevant way, but, but an exegetically sharp way. So we don't leave a message thinking about, well, this is what the pastor thinks, but we leave saying, now I know what God says in this passage and in this text. In other words, a word-centered life is one that, that all of us are captivated by the living word and the written word. And with that comes this thought of Paul's concern in Colossians that he wants to see them established and firm, that he wants to have all of us be presented fully mature in Christ. And for that to happen, it, it obviously is a work of the Spirit. That is a given. But it does entail that we are systematically reading, studying, and hearing God's Word all of us, that, that we're not just, you know, the, the danger is for, for many people, they'll start the new year saying, I want to read through the Bible. And that's, that's a worthy goal. Uh, you want to pick one that's realistic with your time schedule. Uh, but then what often happens is you, you maybe get through the book of Genesis and then it dies off or you get a little way to Leviticus. But if that's your only pattern, then every year you're only sort of digesting Genesis and Leviticus. You're not moving your way through all of Scripture. You're not experiencing the fullness of the Word of God, which Paul says his desire is to see happen. So if you look with me at Colossians 1 and verse 23, we have two different terms that are, are mentioned there. Notice he says, that his heart's desire is that it would be established and firm. If you take those two words together, it literally means they would have a solid foundation. Uh, it's the same wording that's used by Jesus when he talks about the man who builds his house on a rock versus the one who builds his house on sand. The one who has his rock is on a solid foundation. So Paul says it's his desire, as it is my desire, that, that for each one of us, no matter where we are in our point of understanding of Scripture, that we would become more established and firm, that that foundation would be girded up and strengthened. Now, how do you measure that? Well, in verse 28, he gives you a clue that we would be presented fully mature. So one of the reasons that we're learning this in sort of the, the NIV, but the roughly 2008 translation, uh, which fits and parallels some in the ESV, 
is the rendering of the term fully mature, which, which is really more accurate than saying that you would be perfect. Because perfect implies to some of us the thought of sinless, and we can't be perfect right now. But fully mature literally means that we're moving toward the goal that Christ has for each of us in Christ. And that is increasingly Christ-likeness. So that goal is both unfolding every day that we live and will reach its ultimate completion when we go to see the Lord. But it's not a command just saying, well, look forward to the day when you'll be fully mature. But, but what are the steps being taken now to move closer and closer toward that goal? And that's a concern Paul has, not just for the believers in Colossae. In Galatians, he says that, that he, in a sense, is almost like in the pain of childbirth as he wants to see Christ formed in those in the churches in Galatia. And I think that should be some of the burden we feel, that, that we, we, we almost hurt sometimes when we don't see maybe ourselves even growing and maturing spiritually, or when we don't see others around us growing spiritually, that, that rather than getting frustrated, we, we should be driven back to God's word and realize the need we all have to, to read it systematically, to kind of make our way through it in bite-sized pieces, to, to hear it being taught, to listen to it with the intent of wanting to, to obey it. And Paul's not the only apostle who, who has this conviction. Uh, Peter, in his first letter, talks about how we have been born again by the living word, and then ends by saying, not only were we born again by the living word, but it's by the word of God that you grow in your salvation. So you really can't talk about a Christian life without including Christ, that it's a Christ-centered life, and you really can't speak of a Christian life without speaking of it being a word-centered life, because it is to be grounded in the word of God. So now we come to the third and final aspect here in Colossians 1. Uh, a Christian life is a servant-centered life. Um, and you can kind of see where Paul, where does Paul get this teaching from? Christ himself. Christ spoke about how he came to seek and to save the lost. He came as a servant. And that's clearly seen in his humiliation, both in his birth, the incarnation, and ultimately in his death. But Paul picks up on that in verses 28 and 29 of Colossians 1, where as we go back to our memory verse, he says, he is the one we proclaim. How do we do that? Admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. And notice that he said earlier in this chapter that you can't have wisdom without knowing Christ because Christ is the treasure, the source of all wisdom and knowledge. So as a Christian, if you find sometimes you feel like you lack discernment, that you lack wisdom, the ability to, to look at the world around you and circumstances from the correct perspective, it's more than likely tied to the lack of depth in your understanding of God's word. 
But this third aspect that he heightens here is it is a servant-centered life. Because listen to verse 29. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Now, even though Paul has not been to the church in Colossae, he has received news of the church from Epaphras, who probably may have founded the church as a result indirectly of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. But he is deeply concerned about the growth of one another in Christ. And, and not just his favorite Christians, but, but all believers. Because you keep seeing this word come up, all, everyone. So Paul's desire is that, that we would see in believers that they serve one another to the glory of God. Uh, and notice that word he uses, to strenuously contend. Uh, other translations have to labor. And it's this thought of laboring to the point of exhaustion. Uh, it's, it's the root for our word agony. Now, Paul's not saying like he's in agony in disappointment about this, but he is all in, in wanting to serve Christ by serving one another. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he explains a little bit more, well, how do, how do we serve one another in the body of Christ? And, and he mentions in verse 2 and following sort of three aspects of, of how do we do that? Well, notice verse 2. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart. So here's an opportunity, all of us in Christ, one way that we can serve one another is simply how can we offer encouragement? How, how can we literally come alongside others in the body of Christ in a way to, to build them up, to comfort them. And I hope all of us, even in a time of social distancing, can think of ways we could do that. Email, texting, FaceTime, um, letters, postcards, phone call. Those, those are ways that we all can do this task of, of having a Christian life that is servant-centered. Because the emphasis there is not on what is convenient for you or what works best for you, but what would be best for the person that you're thinking of? What, what would encourage them? What would indicate to them that they're not forgotten during the week? And I would trust the Holy Spirit would, would convict you in those areas where you just might sometimes lose sight of that during the week. We all get caught up in our own activities, and it is easy to lose sight of that. But then he goes on and says, not only that they would be encouraged in heart, but then notice his second practical aspect, they'd be united in love. And we know that the lack of unity among many churches is, is certainly a destructive testimony to the world. So the importance of unity and love, but that unity is not based on just some emotional feeling, but in our unity in Christ Jesus. So out of, as we've said many times, our love for God, our love for Christ, comes our love for one another in Christ. 
And so we have encouraging one another. We have praying for continued unity in love. And then he goes on and says there, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Then you go down to verse five and he says, for though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. And it's in that last line that Paul gives us a third way to serve one another. And that is we should want one another in Christ to experience the assurance of their salvation. And he uses this word to see how disciplined and how firm your faith are. Both, both those words are military metaphors. They, they speak of sort of a, uh, a, a bulwark or defense, uh, a point of security. So we should want to pray for the spiritual growth and development of one another. That in the midst of your week and my week, when we face trials, we face difficulties, um, that, that it would refine our faith. Uh, that it would be strengthened through those things. So as you pray for the family of the week, for Marion this week, as you pray for one another, think of what's kind of going on in that person's life. And many of us, you know, we can associate with the feeling kind of isolated, um, you know, unsettling of things, challenges of working remotely, uh, whatever else might come with that, concerns about health. You know, how can we, be servant-centered as we approach the week that's before us. So you get a feel for why I think Colossians 1.28 was, was not only a great challenge to the believers in the first century, but one very relevant to us as we enter 2021. But there's one final thought that you might have that I think the believers in Colossae would have when Paul when this letter was read to them, how can we do this? Yeah, these, these three principles sound great. A Christ-centered life, a, a word-centered life, a servant-centered life. But you know yourself, I know myself, the believers in Colossae knew what they were like, and you may find yourself saying, I, I, I could never do that. Well, look at verse 29. We don't want to miss that Paul says, to this end, I strenuously can contend. But then he says this, with all the energy, Christ so powerfully works in me. You're right if you're thinking, I can never do this. I can never produce that in my life. Even as a Christian, you're exactly right. But Paul says, that's, that's not the point. You don't have to produce this. You just need to yield more and more to that inworking, powerful energy, this constant working of God in you through Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but to me, that's extremely encouraging. It reminds me, where is my source of strength? Um, and so whatever spiritual resolutions you might decide upon, Remember, you cannot do those apart from Christ. 
As Jesus himself would say to his disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. But relying on Christ, trusting in Christ, you can do and say exactly what Paul says, with all of the energy of Christ working so powerfully within me. Let me pray with you. Our Father in heaven, we, we realize how far short we often fall of obeying your word like we should. But thank you for the reminder in this letter from prison that your grace is sufficient, that Lord, you give us what you command. And so I pray that for, for each of us, as we approach this week, throughout the week, you would bring these words and this passage back to us about what it means in our relationship with one another, in our relationship within our homes, uh, to be Christ-centered. Uh, Lord, that as we go about whatever challenges and situations we find ourselves facing, that we would also think about what does it mean to be word-centered, uh, that you would give us a greater passion, a desire to, to read your word and to, to put discipline and effort into that, uh, realizing that it's not just going to happen easily, uh, that we'll have to sacrifice time, uh, that there are portions of scripture that are harder to read than others. Uh, but Lord, we would trust you. We would ask your Holy Spirit to go before us. And Lord, out of all of those results, that we would be servant-centered. Uh, forgive us for our selfishness at times, uh, for our sinful tendency to, to only desire um, to meet the needs of others after we feel that our needs have been met first. Uh, Lord, change us, transform us, we pray, for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.